Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. To you that are dads in the room, happy Father's Day. And to uh, my dad and my father-in-law, happy Father's Day to you guys as well. Um, I've already called them, so that was just a little shout out there. Um, this morning, I want to invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, and what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks together, is the kingdom of God. Um, I've become convinced over the last several months that there's, there's really two roads that can be taken at this moment in the life of, of every one of us um, as, it, as it pertains to having to contend with just seemingly just a constant kind of uh, confrontment with different ways of thinking about things, um, whether it be on how to, to think about race, how to think about politics, how to think about viruses and pandemics. I mean, all of these things have been on the surface over the last year, but if anything is to be learned, it's that there'll be new issues that will emerge and will surface. And so how are we rightly to think about these things? And, and the way that I'm thinking about it today and the way that I want us to go about it over these next several weeks together in the gospel in Matthew is this way. As a dad, um, I have a responsibility to teach my children things. And one of the things that um, I've, I've taught my son to do, uh, my son Grayson that's right here on the front row, is how to mow the yard. Um, and so that's one of the things that I've taught him how to do. Now, when I was teaching him about how to mow the yard, I could have taken one of two paths in that moment of training him. One path would have been to tell him all the things not to do, how not to mow the yard. Um, so I could have spent a lot of times just thinking up all of the, the things not to do, like not to mow over the bushes, you know, not to mow over rocks, not to find, you know, metal sticking out of the ground and just to bring the blade down on it. You know, like I could have just thought about all of the possible scenarios of how not to mow the grass or, and this is the path I took, I, I, I taught him how to mow the grass. I, I showed him how to crank the mower, how to, to find your line and, and then just to walk, how to pivot and turn and kind of make that initial square and then how to start going back and forth to knock it out. I, I taught him how to mow it. And then it's only as some things kind of crop up or I see something, maybe a potential danger, I just say, hey, with that piece of metal right over there, just be sure that you kind of go right up to it, but then you back off of it before you turn so that you don't end up coming down on it. And, and I just kind of gently deal with those possibilities rather than spending all of my time and effort trying to think of all the things that, that I could to have to con confront and correct him with. I just taught him the pure and simple way to do it. And I'm convinced that what we as the people of God need to return to is just the simplicity of the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom, there is one king. And it is this one king who alone is able, who alone is sufficient, who alone has the right to lead us. And in his word, he has provided a very clear understanding of the kingdom and what the kingdom is all about. So that we as kingdom residents, we who live in the kingdom of God and have Jesus as our king, we find our orientation through everything everything that comes, both on a national scene, but also on the personal scene. 
That as we navigate relationships and we navigate the workplace, we navigate raising children as dads in this room, as we navigate these different things that come up personally and corporately as a church and as a nation, that there is an orientation, there is a leader who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we find our orientation from him, and that causes us not to withdraw from the world, but to be in it and not of it. The, the king is who gives us orientation not to avoid, at times, difficult and needed conversations, but gives us the paradigm on how to have the conversation so that we're, what results is unity and love and compassion and faithfulness and justice and mercy rather than simply sweeping something that we don't want to talk about under the rug and pretending that it doesn't exist. The kingdom is a kingdom of confrontation. The kingdom is a kingdom of peace. The kingdom is a kingdom of goodness because it is a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And over this month, I want to encourage you to just be reading through the Gospel of Matthew. Some people will make it a goal to read the Gospel of Matthew each week. If you do that, you're reading basically three or four chapters a day to be able to get through the Gospel in the course of a week. Some people will just read a few chapters this week and then some more chapters next week. This week, we're going to be taking a bird's eye view of Matthew, Matthew chapters 1 through 3. And then next week, we'll be looking at chapters four through seven and just kind of from a, a big perspective of looking at the kingdom of God. And so I want to encourage you to be, to be reading God's word um, as we go through this together in the gospel of Matthew. But in the gospel of Matthew, we, we find these opening words and they give us a lot. And that's what we're going to look at today to understand the kingdom of God. And so I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's good word is we are hearing not from Chad. The last thing you need to hear from is Chad. But from hearing from the Lord and finding our orientation from his word. And so hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Will you pray with me? Father, these are words that we are so prone to read quickly, maybe even to skip. But I ask that by your grace and through the, the power and authority of your Holy Spirit, that you would slow us down today to understand why the beginning of the New Testament, why the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew would begin in this way to help us to then find right orientation to the kingdom of God through these words. Do it in such a way that you get the glory and all of the credit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, one commentator noted that we're not much of a people on genealogies of really looking into it, but I beg to differ because I, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of us that have sent off a little sample of saliva only to be told stuff that we already knew. Um, you know, from these uh, 23andMe, you know, Ancestry.com, all of these different groups that are trying to give you this sense of where you come from and this genealogy and things like that. And so mine tells me that I'm of European descent. No kidding. You know, you know, it was just one of these things where I was like, oh, well, that, that didn't really lead to anything. But it was interesting to be able to look and to see some of the significant, some of the moments in my own family tree of names and where names came from. Uh, to be able to see my dad's name is Littleton Boone Gilbert. And so it took a little bit of digging on Ancestry.com when, when dad and I were doing this to find where that name kind of came from. And so it goes back, you know, several generations generations. And then it even extends back further, like going all the way back to Daniel Boone and on his wife's side of the family of the Boone name coming into the family and being carried down or whatever. And so it's pretty neat to see this. And I think that there's a lot of intrigue among us about these sort of things of like, where do we come from? And about a little bit of our family history. And it's significant that Matthew opens up the story of Jesus Christ in this way a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's a lot there. There's a whole lot there in just those two names and in those two stories. But I want to go ahead and frame today's message for how we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus to understand it from the lens of the kingdom of God. You see, the reality is, is that Matthew is wanting to communicate about the kingdom of God. That's what the whole 28 chapters is about. It's about the kingdom of God. That's the big idea. And within any kingdom is a king. And so it's about King Jesus. But Jesus himself is going to, is going to teach us about what the kingdom of God is like. He's going to use parables to help explain it. He's going to illustrate. He's going to communicate about it. He's going to talk about coming into the kingdom. I mean, all of these things. And then it ends in Matthew chapter 28 with, with the king saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So it's all about the kingdom of God and all about the king of that kingdom who is Jesus. So why would it begin this way? Why would it start off this way? Because the, the kingdom of God has always, has always been of improbable beginnings, of improbable victories, and of improbable promises. The kingdom of God has always been. It, it didn't just start with Jesus this way, it's always been about improbable beginnings, improbable victories, and improbable promises. Now, why do I use the word improbable? Because it's not impossible. It's not impossible, but it is improbable. That when you look at these stories and you see kind of how they unfold, you say, that was not likely. It's unbelievable that it turned out just that way. And that's what we see when we read just these few names. And I want us to start at the end of the sentence and work our way back toward Jesus in verse 1. First of all, you see this, the son of Abraham, the son of Abraham. Abraham's story was one of improbable beginnings. 
I want you to hold your place in Matthew chapter 1 and turn with me over to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. So we're going to turn from the first book of the, gospel, of the New Testament to the first book of the Old Testament. And it's right here at the end of chapter 11 that we first meet this man named Abram, whose name would then be changed later to Abraham, father of many nations. But, but it's important for us just to make that connection to know that this is the same person that's being spoken of. And this is the introduction. This is kind of where the whole story begins for the people of God as it relates to Abraham. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all peoples, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is an improbable beginning because Abram has done nothing to get God's attention. There's nothing in chapter 11 that, that notes that Abram did this for the Lord. And so therefore the Lord looked upon him favorably. Just all of a sudden out of nowhere, God speaks to Abram. His beginning is one of grace. Undeserved. He didn't earn it can't pay it back. And then as you're going to get to know Abram, if you read through Genesis, this is a man who was a man just like you and me. He was prone to weakness and fear. He doubted. He got impatient and came up with his own solutions. This is an improbable beginning for any story that just out of nowhere, God speaks. But think back to the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, the entire creation unfolds this way. Just all of a sudden, God acts. God does something. And he did it for Abraham. So we see the, the beginning of this kingdom being referenced in Matthew's genealogy. Remember, his gospel is all about the kingdom. But he's saying this goes back further to a man named Abram. And that's exactly how he begins his genealogy. Flipping back to chapter 1, he starts off in verse 2. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. And it keeps going down through this genealogy. But notice the first set of names begins with Abraham. And that's a significant marker for Matthew in this long story that has now led up to Jesus. But he doesn't want us to miss it or to forget. He's calling us to go back, all the way back, and almost kind of leaning in and saying, don't you forget how Abraham's story started. I don't know about you, but I need that reminder of improbable beginnings. Second, we look at Abraham's life and we see improbable victories. This was a man who, who didn't have military training, who didn't have all these things, but yet we see him in moments when you would think the end was near. When he lied about who his wife was in order to protect her, really to protect himself, you would think that story ends poorly, but they have an improbable victory. When his nephew Lot is, is captured by a foreign army, Abram goes after him to get him, and you would think that's not going to end well, but it does with his victory and him plundering these folks. I mean, so you see these improbable victories, but then beyond that, you see these improbable victories even in his own life of him waiting on the Lord and waiting on the fulfillment of promises. 
Promises made, promises kept. And that's the third reality that we see about Abram life is it's an improbable promise because what is promised in chapter 12 is this, a land, a people, and a blessing. This one guy is told, one day you're going to receive a land. One day you're going to be a great people and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That is an improbability. That's not likely that one man would receive a land, would become a mighty nation, and through him, through his descendants, through his line, all peoples of the earth would be blessed. So just lock it in. The nature of the kingdom, this starting figure, Abraham, that Matthew puts up for us, was a man of improbable beginnings, a man of improbable victories, a man of improbable promises, promises that only God could bring about. Fast forward, going through the genealogy of Matthew, he goes down and he gets to verse 6, and Jesse fathered King David. David, a man after God's own heart. David, absolutely, without question, the greatest king in Israel's history. He's the one that when parents told their children about a great and mighty warrior king, they told them about David. That They wanted their boys to grow up to be like David. They wanted their girls to marry a man like David. David was that almost hero of old who was revered, who didn't have a perfect track record, but, but was one who was still venerated even in Jesus's day. And so we look at his story and we see again about this marker of the kingdom of God, because this is at least one who is a king. He was King David. And so we, we already have these markers of understanding from the movies we watch, the books we read, the history that we understand, to understand a little bit about kings and kingdoms. And this is a king, King David. But his is a true story of from the pasture to the palace, improbable beginnings was King David. David was one who was the youngest in the family, who was out tending the sheep when all of a sudden Samuel comes to anoint the next king. And it's none other. I mean, they even, it's almost like they forget about him. They overlook this, this one David. They're like, well, there's one last kid out in the field, but certainly not him. And he comes in and this is God's anointed, an improbable beginning. And then when David is then anointed and then starts to experience these victories, they are improbable, not likely victories. Like when a young boy, maybe a teenager at this time, goes up against a giant named Goliath with five smooth stones. That is an improbable victory. Then when you look at his, his life and kind of the expanse of the kingdom of Israel under his leadership, some of the victories that God gave him, they were improbable victories. Israel was not this huge military force to be reckoned with, but yet God was with them and God was leading them to these improbable victories. And we look at his life, but then we see some, some very likely failures because of moral failings, of adultery, of murder. And so you see the fall of this great king, but before those moments, 
You see these improbable victories. But then it's, it's even after all of those failures and all of those failings that then we hear a promise uttered, an improbable promise, a promise that you think would not be uttered to one like David, one who has made these terrible mistakes, who has asked for forgiveness from God, but, but there's been so much consequence to his decisions. And then even as he gets older, it seems to get worse with some of his kids and they're fighting and all of these things. You look and you say, why would a promise be given to this king? But a promise is given. In 2 Samuel, a promise is made that one day a king will come from his line who's rule and reign, whose kingdom will be established forever, forever. An unending kingship that's going to come down through David's line, who comes down from Abraham's line. And so you would expect that things are building in a good direction, but God has spoken to his people the way that they should live, and they abandon God. They abandoned him for other gods. They chased after other kingdoms. They felt like their kingdom was a little too weak, so they made alliances with other kingdoms. And God warned them and warned them and warned them. And that ultimately led to then this third break in the text. As you keep going down through the genealogy, you get to verse 11. And it says, And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And then it picks up in the next little sequence. After the exile to Babylon, all of a sudden, we are without a specific person. That's a difficult time in any organization. That, that's a difficult time in, in anybody's orientation is when you don't have a clear person. And this is one of the darkest moments in Israel's history right here. Is, is when they go into exile. And exile means they have ceased to be a nation. They have been deported. They have been captured and deported into other countries. And then they slowly begin to return, although some stay kind of scattered about. You have this, this consequence of their sin that they experience, and it leads into this dark consequence of exile. But it is in this exile and leading up to it and then after it, right, right in this era of time, that we see this huge emergence of a specific type of person called a prophet. And what we have during this moment is God himself speaking through these men called prophets who were speaking still of a kingdom to come who were reminding the people again and again about what would come. And Matthew's gospel is replete. It's stuffed with quotation after quotation after quotation of what the prophets promised, or really what God promised through the prophets would one day come. God promising and promising and promising. And then Matthew in a very clear and, and very pregnant with meaning way says, this was to fulfill what the prophet spoke. This was to fulfill what the prophet spoke. So you had promises made by the prophets and fulfillment that came 
in these days of which Matthew is going to speak. But you need to capture that idea as you look at the full genealogy and understand it's all about the kingdom is that the kingdom has been all about these improbable beginnings of a man named Abram, of a man named David, out of the pasture into the palace, and an improbable beginning of even these men called prophets. You see, even as we look just recently at some of the minor prophets, we look specifically at Amos. And Amos's prophecy begins off with Amos, a shepherd and vinekeeper of Tekoa. And everything that we know about this is its obscurity. This is not a trained prophet. He didn't go to prophecy seminary. This is just a guy who's now been commissioned by God to go and to, to give this warning to the people of God. This is God at work. It's improbable beginnings for a prophet, but it is a prophecy that still is holding meaning for us today that we looked at. Improbable victories. You see, God used the prophets again and again and again. We read it really sequentially pretty quickly in the Old Testament. When we turn and we start looking, but hundreds of years are spanned by these prophets and God used them again and again and again to bring about the, the improbable victory of people humbling themselves and turning back to God. Of, of, an, of an invading army coming only to get word that something's happening back in their land and then they flee so that the people of God don't even have to lift up the first spear or arrow. I mean, all of these improbable victories and then they issue these improbable promises. And it all is leading us to something. The son of Abraham, the son of David, and they don't say the son of the prophets because these were from different lines and different folks. But don't miss this clear marker of the exile and all that was happening around that of the prophecies, all leading us to this one person that the kingdoms of God seems to just swirl around and be centered on. And it is this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that word Christ is the word Messiah, which is the word king. So that it really kind of reads the account of the genealogy of Jesus the king. Jesus the king. So this kingdom of God has as its king Jesus. But remember, the kingdom of God has always been about improbable beginnings. Look at chapter 2, or the end of chapter 1. We see this prophecy being spoken in verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Remember that, the promises made to the prophets. Because this is from Isaiah. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. Which means, which is translated, God is with us. Improbable beginnings. You see, it's not that Jesus has an improbable beginning because Jesus, as Son of God, has always been. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One being who is God, eternally coexist in His three persons. So it's not that the Son had a beginning. It is that the Son entered into flesh in the most improbable way. Born of a virgin. In obscurity, rejected, despised, talked about at the water cooler. That was Jesus. 
That was his improbable beginning with us. You see, John says it a little different. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then move down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John making clear that the Son has always been and will always be. But in this moment in time, 2,000 years ago, he entered into flesh among us in this most improbable of a beginning. But then we see the improbable victory that is about to come about through this one. In chapter 2, in verse 5, it says, In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the, ru the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler. Now, what do you expect after that? How do you expect this ruler to be described? who's going to tell his people what to do, who's going to defeat every enemy, who's going to, to rule with, a, with an iron fist. That's what people wanted. That's what people expected. But remember that, that, that story of a pastor to the palace who will shepherd my people, Israel. He's going to be a shepherd king. And to those who love power, that's a disappointment. That's not what they want. They see that as a weak leader. The shepherd leader is always viewed as a weak leader because a, a shepherd leader is gentle. A shepherd leader lays down his life for the sheep. And for many who love power, that is the height of weakness. But then you look and you see that Jesus is the fulfillment of these improbable promises that were uttered. I mean, look down at verse 2. It says, he stayed there. I mean, I'm sorry, in chapter 2 at verse 15. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. And we see this, this promise spoken hundreds of years ago being fulfilled in Jesus in this very moment. Then we see the fulfillment of this promise in verse 17. Then what was spoken through, the, through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for his children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. These promises that were spoken of the suffering that would come. In this moment, they would accompany Christ when Herod had children killed in an effort to put Jesus to death. But then... It leads us to this promise in chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near, for he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And you say, well, what's so odd about that? What's so odd about that quotation? From that specific prophecy is this. The word Lord there is the word Yahweh. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes. We see that John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus to come. For his kingdom to come. And all of a sudden we realize that the God who spoke in Genesis 1-1 is the God who is coming whose way is being prepared by John the Baptist, who is coming to do something very improbable 
for you and me. This is the point at which we find either a point of divergence or of hope with the kingdom of God. If we expect admittance into the kingdom of God, then we do not see it as improbable, but as likely, maybe even deserved. And so therefore, an improbable Savior who had an improbable beginning is almost an offense to us. We clean up that story, we minimize those parts, and we make the kingdom of God one about choice and about our morals and about the things that we do right that please God and how we're generous with our time, we're generous with our money, that it's all about us and deserved. But the kingdom of God has always been about improbable beginnings. And the improbable beginning of the gospel is this, that while we were yet dead in our sin, Christ died for us. That's an improbable beginning for you and me coming into the kingdom of this improbable king. This one whose beginning was so odd, odd like David's, odd like Abraham's, odd like the beginning of the Bible, is that it's by grace. <laughs> it was grace in Genesis 1-1. It was grace in Genesis 12. It was grace in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was grace during the days of the prophets. And it is grace today that you could hear Jesus speak to you, come and follow me. Come and follow me. That is an improbable beginning to your and my relationship with the living God. And it brings about this improbable victory because we think, well, that he brings us into our kingdom, so then we work really hard for him. And we do it in our strength, and we're going to do these things for God. We're going to fix it. We're going to make this world a better place. We're, we. And the improbable victory that Jesus brings is the death of us. Glory to God. Because that's what he communicates is that you only get life if you die. So it's a death to self. It's no longer I who live, but glory to God, Christ who lives within me. And if there is to be any victory experienced in this life and by this church and in the larger global kingdom of God, it will only be because of Christ who lives within us. You see, there's too much of us right now. There's too much of the debtor's ethic of, of trying to repay God. Well, Jesus did this for me, and so I'm going I'm to pay him back. I'm going to live this life to, to, to make it right. And that's not right. That is not how the power of the kingdom works for victory. The victory that is ours is only by Christ within us. And you say, how does Christ come to be within us? By the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. You're either filled with the Spirit or you're not. And you're either longing for greater filling and power that comes from His Spirit or you're striving in your own flesh. And you're trying to be great for God and do great things for God. But only God is great. 
I mean, that's what we say in these childhood prayers. God is good. God is great. Let us thank him for this food. Brothers and sisters, we need to return to the greatness of the king and to realize there is no greatness in us. And that's what makes this victory so improbable is that we only taste it. We only experience as we die to self and Christ lives within us. We only experience victory as we get on our knees and fresh surrender day after day after day and give it all to him. That's the only way we taste victory. And the only way that we experience victory is by clinging to the one who issued this improbable promise, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This one who promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. This is the one who gives us the victory. This is the one of humble beginnings. This is the one who came down into our brokenness, into our broken world in an improbable way. Born of a virgin, of this long genealogy of improbable beginnings, Abram, David, the prophets, all the way leading to this moment of Christ. To come and to bring about an improbable victory a victory that was won at the cross. I mean, think about the improbability of that, that the way that you become victorious is you die. Jesus won the victory with his death. See, it makes perfect sense then that the way that you would come to experience the victory that only Christ has won is through death. You dying. You saying, I give you my life. I die to myself. I give my life to you. See, that's what Hayden proclaimed today. In these baptismal waters, she proclaimed that it is no longer I who live, but I have been buried with Christ in his death so that she might experience an improbable promise that all those who are buried with Christ shall be raised. That's the hope that is ours That's the good news of the gospel. And God's word teaches that if we will turn from our brokenness and sin, just being honest with God, that we need him. We need forgiveness of sins. And then turning to Jesus, looking to him and him alone to save us and to take away our sin. That we become a new creation. We enter a new kingdom. We leave the kingdom of darkness and we enter the kingdom of light. We, we, we leave the kingdom of lies to enter the kingdom of truth. We, we leave the kingdom of picking up your sword into the kingdom of laying down your swords. You enter the kingdom of God, a kingdom that has always been a kingdom of improbable beginnings, improbable victories, and improbable promises. I want to speak to the one that is in this room right now that says, there's no way, it's very improbable that I could ever be brought into the kingdom of God. Jesus, in the moment of his baptism, the heavens opened 
And the Spirit descended in a visible way. And God the Father spoke from heaven and said these words, This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. And I want you to know something. That when you trust Christ, the Father looks at you and He pulls you in. Like every one of us would long for our dad to do on a Father's Day. And he pulls you in and he looks you in the face and he says, You are my beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. You say, but I didn't earn it. That's the improbable beginning. Jesus earned it for you. You say, but I, I, I'm not strong enough. That's right, you're not. But Jesus was perfectly strong enough all the way to the cross. You say, but... Maybe it'll go away. He promises. It's an improbable promise that he gives you for all of eternity. So will you trust him? Will you give your life to this one who loves you more than you will ever understand, who right now is speaking to you, calling you to himself? I want you to stand as we worship through song. And if you're here this morning, and more than anything, you want to run to God, you want to enter the kingdom, then I invite you, come here. Come here in this moment. I want to pray for you. I want to pray over you. But you respond in this moment as God leads.